Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by MediaBytes.com, the marketing school for photographers. Head over to MediaBytes.com now to get instant access to Shut Up and Shoot. It's a free inspirational audio course for photographers. This week, a little something special. Not just one, but two interviews. The first interview is all about photography associations with Eugene Mopsik. He's the executive director of the American Society of Media Professionals, also known as ASMP. The second interview is the first in a series of discussions with Canon USA. Chuck Westfall from Canon joins us to talk about Canon's DSLR line and also what Canon is up to in the video space. So, all that and more in episode number 256 of This Week in Photo. Okay, up next is a chat with Canon's Chuck Westfall. Chuck and I dive into Canon's DSLR line and explore who each model is specifically designed for. Plus, we also talk about the megapixel versus the high ISO race, the Canon speed lights, and just so much more. This is a great conversation. So give it a listen. Okay, you got a really special treat um, right now. I'm, I'm on the line with Mr. Chuck Westfall. He's from Canon. He's the technical advisor for professional imaging products over at Canon. And somehow I managed to get him on the line to sort of pepper him with questions about the DSLR lineup that Canon has, as well as I'm going to try to, if I have time, I'm going to get into some questions about the Speedlight lineup and maybe even some forward-looking stuff about the you know video and some products that they, they have coming up in that market. So, Mr. Chuck Westfall, thanks for, uh, welcome to This Week in Photo. Well, thank you, Frederick, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Glad to be here. No, it's good to have you. So let's start off with with just a little background on you. Technical advisor for professional imaging products. What what does that mean? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's a it's a long and interesting story. I've been with Canon now for thirty years, so it's a good long career here. But uh, uh, what I do these days is basically spend about half my time on research for our future professional cameras and camcorders. Um, and then I spend a lot of my time also being a spokesman for our new products as we're introducing them. Okay. Got it. Got it. So you're the, you're the perfect person to be speaking with about, you know, what's new, what's the latest and great, you know, all that, all that cool stuff about the, the lineup, right? I would hope so. You know, <laughs> I, I usually uh, get a lot of, uh, a lot of questions about that on a fairly regular basis. So hopefully I'll be able to help. Okay, great. So let, let's just jump right into this. So the, you know, this week in photo audience is mainly made up of advanced amateurs or amateurs, advanced amateurs and professional photographers. So specifically, I want to target this conversation at the 70 and moving up from there. So the, let's talk about this. Let's start off with a brief chat about the 7D. So who was the 7D built for? Because I see, you know, there's the 60DA and the 60D series. And then we have a jump up from there to the 7D. Who, who was that targeted for? Well, the 7D camera is uh, is really probably about the broadest spectrum camera uh, that we have um, in the high end of our market for for EOS. Uh, it was brought out in 2009, and it was more or less designed to be, I would say, the uh, like the perfect midpoint. Uh, it's kind of a camera that is affordable enough for somebody who's used to a Rebel to be able to move up uh, into a 7D type of body without too much extra expense. But at the same time, the, the level of features and the level of quality is, is good enough that uh, it, the camera has been very well accepted by our professional customers as well. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then the, you know, what's the, you know, in, without getting into specific numbers about the user base for the 7D, are you seeing a significant number of people like just sort of stay put with, with the camera body that they have? Or, you know, like for example, in the software world at Adobe, Adobe generally sees a pattern of leapfrogging where people will buy a certain camera body, another camera body will be, or I'm sorry, a piece of software, the next piece of software will be released, they'll skip that one and wait for the, the next iteration after that. Does Canon see the same kind of um, 
you know, patterns in terms of people upgrading and moving from body to body? Uh, well, sometimes that happens. I would say, though, that uh, the way we look at it, and we probably are, are going to see, you know, a little bit uh, of variation according to the, the spot in the model line that we're talking about, is that we try to, to space the introduction of cameras in each particular segment out uh, according to the type of market that we have. So cameras like the Rebel series, for example, which mm-hmm. are the lower entry level uh, SLR cameras, they get renewed just about every year now. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a camera like the 7D is generally on a three to four year cycle uh, before it's renewed or refreshed. Yeah. And uh, you know we saw that happening with the 5D Mark III uh, as well. For example, uh, the, uh, the Mark III camera was announced about three and a half years after the Mark II. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that it's for us. It's that kind of an introduction cycle. As far as the uh, the users are concerned, uh, we've identified that uh, in the SLR category, if they're in that mid to upper range, generally speaking, they are going to upgrade their cameras about once every three to four years. Okay, got it. So then you mentioned the five D Mark II and the five D Mark III. So the buzz right now is all about that five D Mark III, of course. What are for the folks that are that are listening to this that are sitting on their five D Mark II saying? Man, I wish I had that 5D Mark III. What are the what is the big carrot for the 5D Mark III that that you would say, okay, you should absolutely upgrade to this camera? Well, it's going to depend on on whether the photographer is really uh, looking at this for still imaging or whether they're looking at it for video as to what the hot points are going to be. Um, but the, uh, the the still photography is still uh, the main usage for this camera. Um, and on that basis, uh, there's just been a tremendous number of improvements on the 5D Mark III compared to the 5D Mark II. You know, starting with the fact that uh, um, the ISO range went up mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, and uh, to go along with that, one of the most important advances, in my opinion, is the fact that the autofocus system uh, just drastically improved from uh, the nine-point system that we had, which is more or less a carryover from the original 5D, uh, to the 61-point system that we now have on the 5D Mark III that's actually the same AF sensor that we're using in our top-of-the-line 1DX. So for still imaging, the combination of the better AF and the uh, the better image quality that we have in the 5D Mark III are the two main things. Now, the, the 5D Mark II took a lot of heat for its autofocus system and people were saying you know a lot of people even on the show were saying that the 5d mark three instead of having a better autofocus system it essentially fixed the autofocus system that was in the mark two is that is that the case or is it what what are the main differences between the autofocus system and the mark three well you know you can look at it uh, in many different ways but uh you know clearly there's uh, a lot more focusing points to begin with 61 mm-hmm. versus nine yep uh, the the spread of the focusing points from left to right and top to bottom is much bigger than it was. And I think that that's very, very important when you're talking about a full-frame camera uh, to be able to have access to the autofocus points over a greater portion of the picture area. Uh, and most of the autofocus points, in fact, 41 out of the 61 can be cross-type points, which are higher-performing uh, than the single-type points that, uh, that we had in uh, the 5D Mark II. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, just on the basis of, of just the hardware of the sensor itself, there's a lot of improvement to look at there. And then uh, in addition to uh, the hardware improvement, the on the software side, the uh, focus tracking uh, on yeah. the 5D Mark III is far, far more advanced. So depending on what kind of photography is being done, all that's going to come into play. So then, so just to get into the weeds a little bit on autofocus, what... And for folks that that don't know, and you know, I I think I have a rudimentary knowledge about what's going on in the camera when I when I half press the shutter. But what is happening inside the inside the com- the computer, the camera, and the optics when the camera is trying to figure out what to focus on? Well, it's going to depend a little bit on on uh, how you set the camera up. Uh, I, I'll say that uh, a lot of photographers are comfortable with the idea of using a single focusing point uh, because that's what they're used to. And uh, uh, in a case like that, if you're just using, like, say, the center point, um, what happens is is that as the light comes into the lens and goes through the reflex mirror of the camera, 
it gets directed down into the base of the camera, and the autofocus sensor mechanism down there looks at that light, defines out uh, whether the image is in or out of focus, and if it's out of focus, in which direction, near or far, and how much movement is required to drive the lens to get the image into focus. So all this is happening in the fraction of a second, and uh, it's very, very uh, accurate and very quick. So that's, that's, the, that's the basic of it uh, for a single point. Now, one of the things, though, that this camera has is uh, so many different ways to configure the autofocus. Uh, and if you go to the opposite extreme of a single point, you could actually set the camera up to have it look at all 61 points simultaneously and then let it pick the point that uh, it thinks the subject is going to be located at. Uh, and where that comes into play primarily is, is not for still images of, in other words, stationary subjects, uh, because usually you know, the photographer is going to pretty much be able to identify what they want to shoot in a case like that. Mm-hmm. But where it does come in handy is, say, for example, photographing a moving subject, uh, maybe something that has a little bit unpredictable movement, like a bird or another kind of an animal, yeah. uh, and you're trying to uh, be able to keep it uh, you know, in the area that the autofocus system can see so that the tracking can take place and everything can be in, in focus from shot to shot. Got it, got it. Okay, so the, let's let's focus squarely, you know, excuse the pun, mm-hmm. on the 5D Mark III. Um, so beautiful camera, people are raving about it. But I want to I want to talk specifically about the sensor in the 5D Mark III and the differences between the Mark II and the Mark III, and then also video, you know, and the the impact or the influence of just the whole movement in photography towards motion and that sort of thing was the 5d or in other words was the 5d mark three a product of overwhelming market demand saying hey we love video we want to shoot features with this thing mm-hmm. all right so when we look at the uh, the sensor itself which was the first part of what you asked about yep. uh that really uh received i would say three uh, technological improvements compared to the 5D Mark II. You know, the resolution on the two cameras between 5D Mark II and 5D Mark III is almost the same, you know, 21 for the Mark II and 22 for the Mark III. So that wasn't really a big issue. Uh, however, what, what we did do was to put in a feature called gapless microlenses. And uh, this is a, a little piece of a lens that sits right above each individual pixel on the sensor and the fact that they're gapless means that uh, they actually are able to channel more light into the individual pixels than before. And because of that, we were able to reduce the noise level because we had a stronger signal coming in. Uh, the second thing is, that happened is that at the actual pixel level, we were able to increase the efficiency of the conversion of the photons that hit that pixel into actual electrical signals that could then be uh, uh, converted into image data. Uh, So uh, this uh, was a secondary improvement. And uh, a third improvement that we had uh, was what we call on-chip noise reduction. And uh, that's just basically a a hardware algorithm that cleans up the signal before it gets out of the chip. Now, the reason I mention it like this is because all these improvements that we're talking about affect every image that is taken with this camera, including the raw images, which is what the advanced amateur and professional photographers are most concerned about. Now, if you take the image data beyond the raw and go into uh, either a JPEG in the camera or a movie file, at that point, you now have the digit processor of the camera involved in the image processing, and that adds a whole other layer of noise reduction into the system that really makes a big difference on, on what the images look like to the end user. So I want to make sure that when we're talking about the image quality improvement of the 5D Mark III that we are getting the point across that the sensor itself did have a big improvement, and then the digit processor also had a big improvement. And depending on whether you're shooting RAWs or JPEGs, you'll either get the benefit of one or both. So when you, when you look at it, when you, when you, you know, so we're, we're in my head, I'm seeing like an exploded diagram of a sensor and all this magic going on and capturing photon rays and all this stuff. But when you, when you look at it from a finished print standpoint, or you're looking at it in Lightroom or, you know, whatever imaging, image editing application that you love, and you're looking at the image on the screen, Right, 5D Mark III versus the Mark II versus the 7D. The same exact scene, same lighting, everything. 
what are the changes that the naked eye are going to be able to perceive, you know, or in other words, if I'm, if I have that raw image up in my, my application, what are the limitations that I'm going to run up against with say a 7D or a 5D Mark II versus the Mark III? Okay. So at, at that point, one of the things that enters into it for the 7D is that the chip on that camera is only about half the size of the full-frame chip that's in the 5D Mark III and the 5D Mark II. Yep. Uh, and uh, the individual photodiodes on the sensor um, are much smaller. So they're only 4.3 micron compared to, say, for example, about roughly six and a quarter on the 5D Mark III and uh, about 6.4 on the 5D Mark II. Uh, and those numbers are kind of hard for people to imagine, but if you were to do the math of uh, you know, how much actual surface area is there on each pixel, mm -hmm. you, you've, you, it turns out that there's almost twice as much pixel surface area on the full-frame chip for each individual photodiode. And so because there's more surface area, there's greater sensitivity, there's less noise. Okay. And what ends up happening is that uh, if you were to compare your 7D image at the lower ISOs, it's pretty darn good. But as you start to raise the ISO up, if you get up to, say, for example, ISO 12,800, which is about the highest you can go on that camera, uh, you really start to see a pretty heavy noise pattern. Whereas on a camera like the 5D Mark III, you're not even breathing hard at 12,800. It's, it's still got a lot more headroom to be able to go up to the higher sensitivity ranges and still do a great image. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, these are the kind of things that, uh, depending on the work that you're doing, it's going to have a greater or lesser impact. A person who's uh, primarily concentrating on shooting on bright, sunny days uh, probably doesn't care too much about the high ISOs. But the person who's going to be shooting in low light indoors, uh, especially video, that kind of thing, uh, where they want to preserve the natural lighting that's around, then the cleaner the image looks at the higher ISOs, the happier they are. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so the the first part of my question was about the influence of the market on you know in terms of the 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 vector switching over to video or or some people switching more into the video or motion direction. Was that was that a key driver in the feature set in the EOS five D Mark three? Yeah, it very definitely was a, a, a big part of our uh, development on this camera because we had seen. Uh, with the 5D Mark II and then the 7D, uh, such a great uh, response from the uh, uh, video community, whether we were talking about uh, independent uh, filmmakers or we were even talking about uh, high-end production from Hollywood or television. Uh, there's such a tremendous response on those cameras, and uh, we naturally wanted to you know, move forward and, uh, you know, keep on developing our cameras to help that out. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, a lot of the stuff that's in the 5D Mark III were, shows up as improvements over what we had in the, in the 5D Mark II. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just a, a quick tangent before we jump into the, the 1D series, the, um, there's a lot of questions or, you know, at least on my show, we talk a lot about ISO or, or sensor or light sensitivity or low light sensitivity to be more appropriate, um, versus megapixels. I mean, where does, what's more important, you know, on the, on the Canon side, cause I know you, you know, you can only, maybe you can focus on both, but what, if you had to place your bets, what would be the, the, the area that is the most important to Canon in terms of next generation bodies? Well, I don't think that we can necessarily say that one always wins out over the other. Uh, you know, the the idea about uh, incre increasing resolution beyond what we have is uh, is not something that we're opposed to at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's something that has its place, uh, especially for landscape photography, because those are the people who are generally speaking going to be the ones who are most concerned about making large prints. Yeah. yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I'd have to say quite honestly that uh, that is the minority of users compared to the overall market when you start to, to include the video people. Mm -hmm. And you're also including the other photographers who are concentrating more on human subjects or animal subjects uh, where there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of low light. There's a lot of other uh, considerations that uh, uh, take priority over the absolute maximum uh, resolution that could be achieved. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Uh, let's let's jump into the flagship of uh, you know, or what I think is a flagship, and that's the EOS 1DS Mark III. 
Um, and price-wise, that's the most expensive camera body, at least in the, the these, this level of DSLR that you guys have. What, who is that camera targeted at, like versus the or the EOS One DS Mark III versus, say, the Five D Mark III? Who are the, you know, well, the comparative audiences? Uh, quite frankly, uh, Frederick, One uh, DS Mark III has been discontinued at this point. Oh, um, okay. We've replaced that uh, in our lineup uh, at this time with the EOS One DX. The One DX, okay, gotcha. Right, and that one comes and, in at that's that's cheaper than that than the uh, the One DS Mark III body. Okay, so what, what's the what, what are the differences between those two bodies? You can think of the One DX as basically the big brother to the Five D Three. It has uh, the same sixty-one point autofocus system, uh, but instead of a um, a six frame per second camera for stills is now a 12 frame per second camera. Okay. Um, and it also has a more sophisticated uh, metering sensor for available light. Yeah. Um, the 5D Mark III has the uh, 63 zone metering sensor, but uh, the, uh, the 1DX has a 100,000 pixel RGB sensor. Uh, and with that uh, really high performance uh, sensor, there's also a Digic 4 processor that's running that just that part of it. Um, and what we're able to do with that is to actually introduce face detection um, and uh, color detection to help and uh, act as a contributing factor for tracking subject as they move around the, the screen. Hmm. Now, I've heard of face detection, of course, and I've used it extensively, but, but color detection? What, uh, describe exactly what's going on there. Well, the idea is that, uh, especially when you are in a uh, situation and you're asking the camera to uh, to track the subject across all 61 points by itself, okay. uh, there can be times, depending on what you're photographing, where the contrast level of the subject might be just on the threshold of what the regular autofocus detection system could see. And so, you know, in a case like that, if you can identify the color of the subject, Along with the uh, the uh, contrast detection information that you already have, then if the contrast detection goes away for a short period of time, you can rely on the color information and see where that's going to kind of guide where the focusing point should follow. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Okay, let's let's, let's switch gears and talk about light for a little bit. I guess we've been talking about light all along, but um, speed lights in particular. So. The sort of flagship in the the Speedlight lineup has been the 580 EX2 um, up until just recently with the introduction of the 600 EXRT. Um, so for those folks that are out there that have a bag full of 580 EX2s, um, the EX or the 600 EXRT, the RT stands for radio transmitter or radio, right? So can you describe what what the main differences between those two uh, strobes is? Yeah, clearly the uh, the radio feature is the main differentiating point. Um, and it turns out that uh, as far as the output of the flash is concerned, they're virtually the same because, quite honestly, the 600 EXRT is a 580 EX2 with the radio transmission feature. <laughs> um, and it has a, uh, a little bit different zoom head on it. So whereas the 580 EX2 went from 24 to 105 on the zoom head, yeah. this thing goes from 20 to 200. Okay. And that's why it's a 600 EX instead of a 580. Got it. Got it. So if so, just you know, devil's advocate here. If someone has an investment in 580 EX2s with, say, Pocket Wizard radio triggers for those, and they're they're looking at the 600 EX, saying, "Hey, I can eliminate a piece of gear, you know, and carry just this body, and it's going to work with all my Canon stuff." Um, is that a viable sort of way to think about it? Or, in other words, does the RT, the 600 EX RT? have any advantages over the 580 EX2 with a pocket wizard setup? Uh, well, I don't want to go into a you know point by point against sure, a sure. competitive kind of a product, but I, what I would say is this, that uh, yes, there are certain features that we have that are fairly unique in the 600 EX RT. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, the ability to uh, uh, work with uh, up to five different groups of flashes uh, and be able to set them either automatically or manually or combinations of both. Um, there's just so much flexibility to the system. And the, uh, the nice thing about it uh, from you know, the usability standpoint is that our system has a tremendous range on it. 
which is sometimes difficult to achieve with a third-party unit. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, a pretty solid range of about 100 feet that uh, comes through in just about any kind of shooting condition. And we've had photographers go out there and tell us that in ideal conditions, they were able to shoot as far as 400 feet away and still be able to use it. Yeah. Yeah, that's and it opens up all kinds of possibilities. And with with how many how many um, speed lights can you connect together in a network and control independently with this with the RT series? If you're shooting in the radio mode, you can go up to 16 speed lights uh, simultaneously, which is usually way more than enough for most people. 16, uh, yeah, I'd yeah. say. <laughs> um, and, of course, we also have the uh, uh, speed light transmitter, STE3RT. So uh, what that is is just, is just basically the radio part of a 600DXRT without the flash. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one way for people to be able to save a little bit of money if they're trying to outfit themselves with a, a kit, say, for example, of a couple of speed lights and a transmitter, uh, then they can do some good off-camera work. Okay. And they just the, the speed light, the STE2 is, is not radio. So that's not going to work with the, the, with the 600 EX. Um, well, actually, it could because the 600EX has got the ability to be either line of sight or radio. Um, it's the other way around that the STE3RT cannot work with the 580s. Oh, okay, I see. Got it. Okay, Chuck. Let's let's let's. You know, is, I know we we have a little bit of time left here, but I wanted to get into some future facing stuff. You know, to the extent that you can. You you know, like any large company, you can't talk about unreleased products. But um, you know, I know there's there. Canon has released some products in the video space um, that are specifically dedicated to video. For example, in the you know. Looking at the the um, the 5D Mark III series, it has a video capability, but it is essentially a still camera. But you guys are coming out with some some purpose built video cameras, and you've been in that market for a while. Can you talk about you know some of the new things that you guys may be working on? No, oh, I'd be delighted for that. Um, we have uh, a whole new system called the Cinema EOS system that was announced in November last year. Um, and the first product uh, that came into that lineup is a model called the EOS C300. Okay. Um, now, this is a, uh, a camera that is available in either the EF mount or the PL mount, and PL is, is more or less the legacy mount for um, Hollywood that's out there right now and has been for like 60, 70 years. So people who had an investment in the PL lenses could then mount them under the PL version of the EOS C300. Or they could buy the EF version and then use all EOS lenses as well. So the, the, the idea here is that you know we got such a tremendous response from uh, people who were using the 5D Mark II and the 7D, mm-hmm. but they wanted all the pro video features that they were used to on, uh, on video cameras with the large sensor and the lens interchangeability and all that. So C300 is a great way for them to be able to get what they want. That's beautiful. I'm looking at the the body now. It looks like it looks like something out of Star Trek. It's beautiful. So is that <laughs> is the mount on it? Um, are are you know is are you able to use the DSLR lenses on this, or is this a whole new lens and and body system? It, it's a full blown EOS mount, so it can use every single EOS lens that has been made, uh, both the EF and the EFS, uh, you know, which are the smaller format lenses that were made for cameras like the 7D. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to the EF and EFS, it, it's also compatible with another line of lenses that we introduced at the same time as the C300. We call them the Cinema EF lenses. And uh, there's a whole range of those now coming as well. We've got about uh, maybe six or seven of them uh, that have been announced so far. We're going to continue to grow that line over time. That's very cool. Very cool. All right. Um, well, thank you. This has been a, a, a wonderful interview and a, and a treat. You know, thanks for thanks for taking the time. I know you have a really busy day, but this is uh, this has been really helpful in demystifying some of these camera bodies and getting a peek into the future of what's going on with uh, these with these cinema or cinematic bodies. So, thanks a lot, Chuck. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Frederick, and and uh, I look forward to uh, working with you again because uh, there's just a lot more to talk about. I'm sure that uh, you know once you have a chance to get some response from uh, from your uh, viewers and readers, you're you're going to uh, have some questions for me. But at the same time, uh, we've got more to talk about as far as uh, you know, explaining a little bit more of our overall uh, product lineup and, and philosophy of what we're doing, so that people can get a better idea. 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to. So we'll, you know, in the interest of time, not to make this go too long, I, I will schedule part two, part three, you know, of this and uh, and continue the relationship with Ken. And I, you know, this is, uh, you guys are clearly the 300-pound gorilla in the space, and uh, we will we will keep up with you. So thank you so much. All right. Thanks again. That was Chuck Westfall from Canon USA. To learn more about Canon and its products, as if you didn't know where to go, just head over to canon.com. Welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Have you ever considered joining a photography association but were unsure if it was worth it, what the benefits are, etc.? I'm here with Mr. Eugene Mopsik. He's the executive director at the American Society of Media Photographers, also known as the ASMP for those folks in the know. And Eugene and I, we, we crossed paths a couple weeks ago um, at an event down in Ventura, and yeah, you know, I was sort of picking his brain about how how we could best demystify associations or photography associations, and do photographers really need them? You know, or is it what? In other words, what value do they bring to photographers? Because there's a lot of confusion out there around. Well, you know, there's do I need to pay the money for dues, or can I? you know, buy gear or whatever, you know, so Eugene has agreed to come on and sort of demystify all that for us and maybe even give us some history of the ASMP, where it was, how it got to where it is and where it's going. So Eugene, welcome to the show. Well, Frederick, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm glad we, we, we ran into each other a couple of weeks ago. And uh, again, wonderful, wonderful opportunity here. Oh, you're welcome. The, the pleasure's all ours. So let, let's start with you. So Eugene Mopsik. So you are, you, you, you're, like I said at the beginning, you're the executive director over there. What does yeah. that mean? And how did, how did you get to that, that perch? Well, I've been here for nine years now, but I started out as a commercial photographer right after college. I kind of declared myself a photographer in uh, 1970 and uh, worked my way through, I guess, a number of different facets or specialties. Started out doing uh, news and a lot of editorial work, and then ultimately for about the last 15 years of my career, I shot a lot of heavy equipment trucks and forklift trucks and uh, assembly line tools for, for companies like Mack Truck, uh, Mitsubishi, uh, Heister Company, and it, and it was fabulous work, and uh, I loved every minute of it. So ultimately, I had a 32-year career as a as a shooter, but during that time, back in the in the mid 70s, I joined ASMP as a member, and then throughout my career, I participated with ASMP as a local board member, as a national board member, national officer, ultimately uh, as a national president, and then when my Previous, uh, previous executive director uh, decided to retire. I applied for the position of executive director, and, and again, that happened back in uh, 2003, uh, I assumed this position. But uh, let me just tell you a little bit about ASMP and its beginnings. Uh, we were founded back in 1944 by a group of uh, primarily editorial photographers who were concerned about their rights and concerned about conditions for uh, working photographers back then. Uh, Philippe Haltzman was the first president of uh, ASMP. Uh, a number of uh, Arnold Newman was was one of the early early members uh, of ASMP. And and over the years we've had some very prominent. Uh, photographer members, uh, including people like Richard Avedon and mm-hmm. uh, Arnold Newman again, and uh, Joyce Tennyson, Barbara Bordnick. Uh, we have Chase Jarvis. Uh, you know, we have any number of, I guess, very prominent members, and then we also have a uh, number of photographers who are just, you know, good journeymen, working photographers uh, in their own markets. Which, you know, these days uh, everyone's market is just about the entire world, yeah. uh, and. Uh, and they're just out there working. And we have 39 chapters around the country at this point. And uh, I think one of the, the best things that any trade association can provide for its members is is what I would simply call community. When I was working in, in Philadelphia back in the mid-70s and as, as a self-employed photographer, you know, back then you had the benefit uh, – 
Well, you may not have seen it as a benefit, but of having to go to the lab, having to go to your supplier to buy film and, and other supplies on a regular basis. Yeah, those, those and, touch and, points, right? Yeah. And, and invariably, you'd run into other photographers and you'd, you know, stop and chat. And, you know, maybe sometimes it was just hello. And other times you might, you know, sit and gab for a half hour or whatever before, before moving on. Well, you know, today, nobody's going to the lab and, and very few people are even buying their supplies from a local supplier things seem to be you know purchased on the internet and shipped yep. and uh uh i guess the the potential for us as as individual you know communicators creators to be isolated is actually much greater so groups like like ASMP and APA and PPA and NPPA kind of provide that uh kitchen table where where photographers can get together, uh, talk to each other about issues of concern, learn about uh, new trends, and uh, uh, again, just create some kind of sense of community. So and, then, so and, then, take me take ahead. me through that. So is it the sense of community? I want to get my brain around what that means. Yeah. So is it? Are, are we talking online community? Are we talking about these are monthly meetings where you actually show up and interact with people from your area that are also ASMP members? How does that work? Both. We have within ASMP, again, we have these 39 chapters that are around the country and and the numbers in those chapters range anywhere from from, you know, groups with with five, six hundred to uh, chapters that might have 60, 70 members, depending on the location. But, yeah, they they get together pretty much with, with the exclusion of those uh, kind of crazy summer months when everybody seems to be off doing their own thing. But kind of on the school calendar, September to June, uh, most of those chapters generally have monthly meetings. And those meetings could be uh, sometimes they're they're produced by us on a national level where we're sending around people like uh, Blake Disher talking about uh, marketing or Judy Herman talking about keeping your business fresh mm-hmm. or Peter Krogh talking about uh, digital asset management. Yeah. So there's any number of speakers that we move around, but then also chapters produce their own local programming. And some of those things are are driven by uh, the Canon Explorers of Light series. Uh, there are other suppliers who, you know, circulate speakers around. And other times they're just locally produced with, with local contributors on, again, issues of concern to the local chapter. Then we have these virtual communities. So these are communities that are I guess, organized on specialty like architecture, fine art, uh, food, uh, and, and, or there's another group that we have for just emerging photographers, Mm -hmm. uh, ASMP pro advice. And, uh, they, they basically get together there again to discuss issues of, of concern to uh, that particular group. So, you know, our architecture group right now is getting ready for the AIA, uh, convention down in uh, D.C. next month. And so they're, you know, organizing things for that. Uh, you know, the food group uh, gets together online and, and you know, talks about issues of concern to, to food photographers. And sometimes it's technique. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, problems with, with, with business entities or whatever. And, and they get to you know, again, exchange information. Yeah, it's kind of like it, it reminds. I run a meetup group um, here in the Bay Area, which is. It sounds like it's a, a, a much more informal version of of the meetings that you guys run. But it, it kind of, you know, it's that whole every now and then people just want to shake hands with another photographer, right? You want to instead of typing a message, you want to. Hey, let me see your camera. Hey, look at this. You know that kind of thing. Right? There's, there's something about. Uh, I mean, as much as I like the. Uh, I guess the what what the electronic communication allows because you can then have people all around the country and all around the world exchanging ideas at the same time uh, there there is some real value I believe always to the face to face uh meeting uh and that more human contact yeah. and uh I think it's it's a wonderful thing and again as independent creators uh you know you can spend a lot of time in front of the computer on the phone and and by yourself and to you know have those opportunities to talk to fellow professionals and uh and learn from them you know what one of the great things about uh ASMP over the years has been the willingness of members to share 
information with other members. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, on one level, we're all competitors. Uh, and on another level, we're all, we're all brothers and sisters. And uh, I, I think it's a, uh, I, I guess, a testimony to the, to the quality of the membership that they are so willing and uh, uh, open about uh, sharing information. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, I forget who I was talking to, but they were, they were drawing the analogy that photography in a lot of ways is like golf where you know you it, with the expensive gear that that no one understands but you and you know you go you practice your swing um which is you know you're shooting alone right so there's that whole solo aspect to it but what photography uh is missing uh what it sounds like ASMP is bringing to the table is that okay, let's go to the golf club and let's all get together and talk about this latest nine iron that I purchased or, you know, the, the latest hole in one that I, I was able to shoot that those kind of person to person interactions versus you just sitting at home polishing your clubs. Right. You know, and the way, and the way things have gone, the, the past few years, there's certainly plenty to talk about. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we, we have members that range anywhere from their twenties to their, you know, 60s and 70s. Wow. And so for, you know, for those members who, uh, who, you know, were caught in the digital transition for whom, you know, they, they started out their careers, you know, analog shooting, shooting film, and then, uh, you know, had to transition into digital. You know, I like to say it's, it's been kind of hell in the hallway and that transition. Yeah. And, and it, it's been, it been tough getting from A to a to B, but you know, for other members, uh, it's just the way it's always been. I mean, you know, this is this is the way business is done, and and it's very different from when, you know, when I was in business through my career, which pretty much ended, uh, you know, two thousand two as a as a as a professional shooter. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't have to show a portfolio. I didn't really have to chase clients back then. Mm-hmm. Uh the work pretty much came to me. I had a I, I was so so specialized in what I shot that uh there were a limited number of companies that, that I was even interested in, in working with and it was all about relationships for me and and uh you know, satisfying my client needs and working together. And it was, uh, I mean, again, it, it was a wonderful career, wonderful time. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, now, and, and again, all my images were going to print. Now, you know, things of that, that whole print paradigm has been turned upside down. And the, you know, primary use for images today is, is certainly in, within electronic media and not print. And the, the kinds of, I guess uh, rules or patterns that that were established for print use in in pricing and and in other ways and usage uh, don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And every everything's comp- is is pretty much changed, right? I mean, and it, and yep. it continues to evolve. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a constant evolution now. And and again, so for the people who are caught in that transition. Uh, there's a certain difficulty dealing with that, and and again for the for the folks coming up, well, you know, again it's just the way it's always been. Now, uh, I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of photographers uh, every month, and uh, you know, you talk to some people, and they'll tell you right now that that business is better than it's been in years, and I talk to other people, and they're still limping along, and I think yeah. it's, you know, it's a matter of you know where they are uh, you know what what client uh, market segments they're they're servicing and uh, uh also uh i guess the basis on which they work and the kinds of uh, licenses and rights that they're willing to grant yeah and then also you know the the brass tax of it is it's also skill too right so you yeah get- but you know what i what i learned a long time ago frederick is that and and i i kind of lament this sometimes that the the fantastic photographer who's a lousy business person uh, will be long gone before the mediocre photographer who happens to be great at running his business. Amen. Yep. Yep. That's the uh, whole, that's the whole Apple versus Microsoft thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm in love with that fact. Yeah, but it's true. It's a fact of life. I mean, you could it's it's marketing. Like we were talking about, you know, last week. It's it's a lot of it boils down to marketing. If you are if you are like you're saying, if you're a fantastic photographer, um 
and or using the tree in the forest analogy if a beautiful tree in the forest falls and no one hears it did it really fall and, and, and conversely if you create some beautiful art or this you're the greatest photographer on the planet and no one knows about you are you really a great photographer no yeah. right so conversely if there's somebody who's mediocre who knows how to get the word out about them then thousands of people know about them you know, the, the law of averages say that they're better than you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, in social networking now, again, when I was a shooter, uh, there was no social networking. I mean, you know, my social networking consisted of uh, bringing bagels and uh, breakfast food to my clients uh, <laughs> periodically. You know, there, there was no, there was no awesome. online I mean, you know, so, you know, you, you, you worked it however you could back then. But, you know, now it's, uh, I, I mean, I really think on, on the one level, it's it's much more complicated, more involved now because, you know, you need you need multiple strategies. You need strategies for your social media. You need strategies for any any print or web or or email uh you know, promotion that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's a more complicated world and everything moves much faster. Well, Gene, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the stuff that's in ASMP. Cause I know, you know, and I'm not a member yet. And I'm sure after yeah. this, after this conversation, well, we'll, I will be, <laughs> we'll be talking about that. Yeah. So I know there's insurance in there yep. and a lot of people say, okay. And that, and that I think is, if I'm a if I'm a litmus test of my audience, a lot of people will say, "Okay, uh, insurance. I have a homeowner's policy that will cover my you know my gear to some degree." So help me help me through that stuff and the benefits that the AMS, ASMP offers. All right. So let let me preface these comments by saying that number one, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an insurance agent, yeah. and and so uh, anything that I say here, I guess I would ask that that people run by their own advisors. But of course, yep. it's interesting that that what you just said about you know my homeowner's policy. If you happen to be a commercial photographer and you believe that your photo gear is covered under your homeowner's policy. Uh, and you actually have what I would call a catastrophic loss, yeah. uh, there's a real good chance, to my understanding, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Because as soon as your insurance company finds out that you were using this equipment commercially and not as a householder, mm -hmm. uh, there's a very good chance that, that your coverage will be voided. Oh. So there's there's a reason, there's a need to have commercial coverage. And you can get that without an association, but uh, ASMP has worked with uh, a couple of uh, insurance providers for a number of years, and they have come up with packages of insurance that are particularly designed to address the needs of working commercial photographers. And they handle things like certificates of insurance so that if you're going into someone else's property or building and they need to be named as an additional insured, you just call up and, and these things are taken care of. Or if you have someone else's property in your possession, uh, let's say something that you have to photograph, uh, you can be sure that, that that property is covered while it's in your possession. They have leased and hired vehicles coverage. Uh, they have general liability coverage. And they'll also cover your equipment, you know, in the country, out of the country. Hmm. And, you know, you have to be sure to to look at things as to whether or not you're your coverage is for replacement value or depreciated value. Yeah. Um, and again, the commercial policies, you know, at least the good commercial policies would cover you for replacement, not uh, depreciated value. Right. And so we, we offer this kind of coverage. We also offer uh, ins insurance for students while they're in school, more and more students and faculty, more and more schools don't, you know, while they they have to loan they, they loan out equipment to students while they're there, but at the same time they don't want to be in the insurance business. Some schools are still self-insured, but more and more they're getting out of that, and they expect students to have coverage for the equipment that they're taking out of the cage and and using for their assignments. Yeah. And so that's that's something that we. Uh, offer, and uh, we do offer through a uh, an agency uh, health insurance in most uh, 
states around the country. But health insurance is, and insurance in general is a fairly complicated issue. But health insurance is the most complicated, uh, and, and it's all subject to individual state uh, jurisdictions. So there's no such thing as one policy that can hold sway over all states or, or all chapters within right. ASMP. Yeah. So we work with individual uh, brokers who are affiliated uh, to, to, to handle that uh, situation. So now, Gene, what about, what about litigation? So I, I heard, and again, this is coming from my just hearsay. Yeah. So I, if a photographer is sued for some <laughs> reason, you know, for whatever, you know, he breaks something on a shoot or whatever reason, he's, he finds himself in court um, that's somehow related to the, the work that he was doing as a photographer. Is there anything that the ASMP provides to help with that in terms of legal assistance? All right. So we have uh, an attorney on staff at ASMP, Victor Perlman, and his specialty is primarily uh, intellectual property issues. And then I'd guess, you know, next you'd, you'd say general contract law. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't directly represent our individual photographers in legal matters, but what we do do is provide, I guess, what what we call good offices consultations. So members who have these kind of issues are free to call us. Uh, We can give them uh, advice within the limits of, again, not creating a a client uh, relationship, but Mm -hmm. frequently what happens is our lawyer ends up talking with their lawyer, and simply because Victor is is much more knowledgeable on a lot of the uh, kinds of IP issues and issues that photographers frequently frequently find themselves involved in, so that he's able to advise uh, local attorneys on the uh, I guess some of the fine points of the issues that they might face. Gotcha. Uh, but frequently, I mean, what happens is uh, a photographer will uh, get a contract from a client. Uh, get a contract from a stock agency, uh, and we provide a uh, review service of those uh, contracts. Oh, good. So they'll so they'll send them to us, and and basically what we do is we we point out the hot button issues within the within the contract. So and, we and you kind of highlight things like, hey, you might want to you might want to exactly. get some more clarification it's, it's, on this line. Yeah, yeah, because I think frequently the the terminology is either so specialized or it's you know buried in so much legalese that uh, the average reader, I mean, simply has difficulty deciphering what they're what they're reading. Yeah. Now we have we have a tutorial, an interesting tutorial online, which I can I'll, I'll give you some links that maybe you could publish later. But we have something called a uh, uh, it's a it's it's a bad contract tutorial. <laughs> and interesting, <laughs> how how to write a bad contract, right? <laughs> we picked we picked the worst kind of editorial contract we could find some years ago and redacted the the company name from it. And and what happens is in the on the web interface, uh, you see certain areas of the contract are highlighted, and those are the areas that you know we believe are problematic and then when you run your mouse over that area a box opens up and it tells you why that language is problematic and then suggests alternate language so it's kind of a teaching device to help people understand what the you know hot button issues are in contract love that i love that so Eugene, let's talk about cost so what what are we looking at cost wise to to join the association well, the, 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 the least expensive membership is a student membership, which requires, uh, uh, you know, verification of student status. And I think that's $45. And the most expensive uh, membership is $335, which is a general membership, voting membership. And then we have one category below that, which is 225 uh, annually. And, and again, we have all the kind of benefits of a traditional trade association. We have discounts with Apple Computer. We have discounts with B&H, uh, wow. discounts with Zipcar. I mean, I, I've been told by many members that if if they buy a loaded laptop from Apple, uh, what you get in the discount for that purchase pretty much pays for your dues for the year. Wow. Wow. 
So is that so? You said for the the student forty five. So is that is that yep. annually or monthly? That's an annual. Student. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah, students are going to like forty five. I can live on that. <laughs> no, I mean because for us, uh, seriously, it's it's more about. Uh, providing service and information to that constituency and and we see the students as you know again today's student is tomorrow's emerging photographer is is tomorrow's asmp member so you know we're we're interested in uh, uh providing them with information i love that i love that that's great that's that's i mean even 225 for that that top end that's not expensive spread over the year that's that's not even what people spend on coffee right well you trust me i i i make that argument frequently and i'm uh, you know you're preaching to the choir when you're telling me that yeah <clears throat> i want to point out one thing you know we we're talking about resources and what what do we have to offer yeah we we recently built a a web page uh as part of our participation with a group called SPE which is the society for photo Graphic education, and we we present uh, a, a number of uh, uh, seminars at their annual event, which is basically they're, they're the association for college level uh, photography education in, in in the United States for the professors, and uh, so we created a, a page called uh, ASMP Fundamentals, and it's. I'm not sure if it's linked off our homepage right now, but it's asmp.org slash fundamentals. And again, I'll give you those links after the fact. But from that page, that's a landing page where we've aggregated a lot of the major resources that we have that we felt would be good for uh, educators to use as classroom resources. And, And coincidentally, it's a good page for photographers or someone visiting our site, you know, who would want to see what some of the major content areas are uh, within the site. So, you know, we have a lot of information on copyright and copyright registration and on uh, uh, licensing, but there's a, there's a step-by-step tutorial telling you how to register your work. Uh, there's a whole nother site that we created with the Library of Congress called DP Best Flow that's all about best practices for digital imaging, and we've just are in the process of adding motion resources to that. We've been working with uh, Rich Harrington, who's a, a fairly well-known uh, uh, presenter in the, in, in the motion world. And he's created a bunch of resources along with Peter Krog and, and others to, uh, again, update that site to the latest CS version and also uh, add motion resources to it. We have pricing and licensing basics. We have... Uh, a video library from our some of our previous programs, our strictly business programs. So there's a lot of. I mean, guess where where I'm headed is, we have a lot of resources for photographers who, you know, are seeking information on basically any aspect of the uh, business of photography. That is really cool. So so then. Um, you know, I like to end interviews with what the next steps are. So yeah. what's, what's the URL? I mean, we'll put all this in the, in the, uh, the show notes for this episode, but where, where's the URL for ASMP? It's AS, it's just ASMP.org is okay. the, gets you to the homepage. And, uh, you know, again, we're a forward thinking association of, I guess what now we, we refer to as well, we're trying to come up with a new word for photographer, because I think in this day and age, uh, you know, f- photographer is a little bit uh, old school, and and I don't know whether you know visual communicator is the right word. Or, I, got, I got the word for you, Gene. I've been talking about this in the show. Yeah, it's, it's multimediographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what it is. We're yeah. we're moving into you know imaging professionals, uh, you know whatever it is, but but we're no longer just uh, still photographers and and ASMP. You know, our members are moving into motion. Our members are moving into, uh, you know, all types of web-based communications, and and we're moving uh, in that direction with them. Wonderful. Well, Gene, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking the time this morning to let me bend your ear on this stuff. It's exciting. I'm I'm on the ASMP.org site right now. I'm going to sign up and uh, kick myself a little bit today for not signing up before. <laughs> I, I thank you, Frederick. And again, thanks for the opportunity, and, and, and let me know how we can uh, help you and work with you in the future. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you, Gene. All right. Thanks a lot.
And that brings us to the end of another episode of TWIP. To keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, check out thisweekinphoto.com. Also, please support the show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows as soon as they are released. And of course, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me and my various projects at frederickvan.com. And with that... It is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. 